Hey, I just wanted to just say two things, just as a word of encouragement and celebration. One is, I was told by the staff that we've run out of all of our books and devotional workbook for emotional healthy spirituality. Uh, I had a couple of people come up and say, hey, are those books still available? Are they free? And I said, yeah, go back to the information table. They came back and said, there are none left. <laughs> and uh, it's been really encouraging to see so many of you delve in and take this journey seriously. Uh, it's been a blessing. Um, secondly, um, I also wanted to say as a word of encouragement, celebration, last Sunday was a bit of a challenge as we continue to build community in our church and what that means given the diversity. And uh, we challenge you guys by uh, having you guys unexpectedly show up and have you designated at certain, certain tables with people you didn't know. And Caitlin and I, the rest of the staff talked and I said, I was actually pleasantly surprised that as many people stayed and actually did it, um, we're going to do that Every once in a while. We won't tell you when it's happening. So you'll show up on a Sunday morning and you'll realize, oh, this is that Sunday. We're doing that. And I want to continue to encourage you to participate and to be involved in that. We have lots of folks that are still kind of on the periphery of our church community. And they have a really hard time getting to know people, meet people, even with all the avenues of small groups and serving. So I really want to encourage those of you that consider new community your home. Take this as an opportunity to open your heart just a little bit wider so that you could include those who are new. Amen? All right. Uh, we are continuing our journey this morning uh, emotionally, through emotional healthy spirituality. And, and last week we looked at the story of Job. Jonathan Edwards said that the story of Job is the story of all of us. The reason why he said that is because Job lost his family, his children, all of his belongings, all in one day. And many of us might not experience that kind of catastrophic loss in day, but the reality is many of us throughout the course of our lifetime experience losses. Until one day we experience loss of everything as we move from this world onto the next this morning as we talk about this topic of enlarging our, our, our soul through grief and loss, I, wanna, I want to and I need to bring us kind of to this, this point of recognizing that we all will experience loss at some point in our lives. Here's what I mean. Many of us experience losses as we lose our youthfulness. Um, no amount of cosmetic surgery, no amount of diet, exercise, could eventually ward off the process of aging and uh, getting older. And I know we're a young church with many of us in our 20s, but we also have a significant number of folks in our 40s and 50s who are going through this process of losing their youthfulness. We also lose our dreams. Anybody relate? We all have dreams. We start out. Many of us are experiencing the loss of dreams of a career, perhaps, that we thought we would have. Many of us are experiencing the loss of what we thought marriage would be. Some of us experiencing or dealing with the loss of the possibility that we might not be married. And what does that mean? Some of us, and this is really hard for me as a pastor of church that's younger and as we mature. Regularly I talk to parents who are right now wrestling with the loss of the reality that they may never have children. 
more children than they wanted to. We also lose our routines and our stability. Just think about that in transitions. Each time we change jobs, some of us who immigrate to a new country or move to a new city, there's a sense of loss. Jenny and I joke around about the fact that I'm, I'm going to be 46 uh, in a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, we have three children, 11, 9, and uh, 5, going to be 6. And this may seem weird to some of you, but Jenny and I are already talking about the fact that at some point, sooner than later, we're going to experience the loss of, as parents, having a certain amount of influence and power over our children. <laughs> parents, you guys know what I'm talking about? Say amen if you do. Amen. Yeah. There's this thing that's like, oh my gosh, you know. And then I'm also at that stage, like many of you, where I'm now turning that corner as I think about what does it mean to be caretakers for my aging parents? Are you with me this morning? So, see, losses. And then some of us, and this was really hard for the last two, three weeks, and I so appreciate your courage. We go through the process where we lose our, what we thought, who God was, or our image of who God was. And for some of us, it's very painful because many of us grew up in certain spiritual environments where we invested so much into who we felt like, what it meant to follow Jesus, and what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And we encounter that period in our lives where we go, much of what I thought, much of what I invested in terms of who I thought God was and being a follower of Jesus was either foolishness or just doesn't work. And we're now at this place of going, who is God? Who is God? What does it mean to follow this God? And then, of course, right related to that is we lose our idealistic picture of what we think the church is. Goodness gracious, Jesus For those of you that are new Christians or fairly new Christians, I've got some good news and bad news. Actually, it's mostly bad news (laughs) as I think about this. And that is this. You ready? You ready? You ready? Here we go. Um, The church is full of flawed, imperfect, sinful people. And you know, it's so painful when we encounter when we encounter this that's not what I envision church and Christians to be I thought they were better than this I thought they were more godly than this there are no church there's no perfect church as long as you and I are a part of it But it's painful to come to grips with that reality. And then, of course, most of us at some point will experience catastrophic loss. This year has been a year of loss for me and our church family. We've had family members die. We've had friends or children commit suicide. We've had spouses who've had affairs. We've had people who found themselves single after a painful divorce or even a breakup. We've had folks who were diagnosed with cancer. We've had folks who were let go after being a part of a company for years as a company downsized. We've had children who were born with certain handicaps. And we've had infertility, miscarriages. 
broken friendships. Church family, losses are a part of life. But here's the problem. We don't know how to grieve our losses well. We, as a culture, don't know how to grieve our losses well. We either look at them as like foreign alien invasions into our normal lives. So we go, what the heck is this? Or we medicate it. Sex, drugs, alcohol, meaningless sexual escapades, overworking. We do anything and everything so that we don't have to think about it. We could deny it. We could shrug it off. We could bury it. We don't know how to grieve our losses well. Church, are you with me this morning? We want spiritual shortcuts around it. We want other people to take care of it. But all of those are unbiblical and a denial of our common humanity. See, the amazing thing is when I look in Scripture, Scripture is clear about this. Scripture teaches us to deal honestly and prayerfully with our losses and disappointments. The scripture is clear that you and I have a choice. You ready? Our choice is whether these deaths will be terminal, that is, it will crush our spirits and life and cause us to remain stuck in despair, or it could open open us up to new possibilities and depths of transformation in Christ. This past summer, as I helped my friend Lisa Orris mourn the loss of her oldest son through a tragic motorcycle accident. As I sat with her over coffee two months later, she told me about a book that she was reading, a book called A Grace Disguised by a guy named Gerald Sitzer. Gerald Sitzer lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter at the same time through a tragic motorcycle, a a tragic car accident, horrible car accident. And he writes this book dealing with this journey. And let me read you an excerpt from what he says. I don't have it up there, so lean in and pay attention. Catastrophic loss by definition precludes recovery. It will transform us or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. There is no going back to the past. It is not therefore true that we become less through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there is nothing left. Loss can make us more. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. One learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain, 
by turning inside oneself, by finding one's own soul. However painful, sorrow is good for the soul. The soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. Today, um, I have a special guest. I told you guys that throughout this sermon series, I was going to have different voices. And today, I'm going to, in a few minutes, introduce Sharon Whited. Before I do, I know that there are significant numbers of you that are sitting here. And I want to kind of catch us up before Sharon comes up for a couple minutes so that we're kind of uh, on the same page. The main idea that we've been looking at is simple and yet far-reaching. If you could put this up, please. We've been talking about how emotional health, and we've defined emotional health as being self-aware and loving well. And by the way, church, I remind you every week, I'm going to say it again. The entire point of Christianity following Jesus is to love well. The indispensable mark of spiritual maturity is not how anointed you are, how much Bible knowledge you have, how much ministry you're involved in. It's being able to love well. And we've said that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. You cannot become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally mature. And I've asked you guys to get used to this this picture, this graphic, the iceberg. Because 10% of our lives that is visible to the human eye is what we mostly focus on. And rarely do many of us go be underneath the iceberg, the 90% of our lives that is unseen. And we've said that that is where the real work of transformation needs to happen. We began the sermon series by asking the question, do you want to get well? Do you remember that? Do you want to get well? We came to grips with the fact that some of us might not want to get well because we actually rather stay stuck where we are. Because sometimes the pain and the courage it requires to get well means that we have to come face to face with grips with the fact that in order for us to get well, there will be changes, significant changes. And so we asked that question, do we really want to invite these changes into our lives knowing that our lives will look different? Then we talked about what emotionally unhealthy spirituality looks like as we looked at Saul. And we talked about the sin of self-deceit and how destructive self-deceit is in getting well. And we've described the sin of self-deceit as someone who knows the truth but doesn't know the truth because they don't really want to know the truth. And a big part of this journey has been coming to grips with the fact that we need to be rigorously honest. I love this quote by John Orkberg. I love this quote by John Orkberg when he said that painful honesty is better than comfortable avoidance. Listen to me. New community, we pride ourselves in the fact that we don't like to beat around the bush. We don't like to be fake. We don't like to pretend. But the challenge of the sermon series has been how rigorously honest are we willing to be about what lies deep underneath? And three weeks ago, we began looking at the seven pathways to emotionally healthy spirituality. When we talked about knowing yourself that you may know God. And we spent a couple weeks talking about going back in order to go forward, looking at our family of origin. 
And last week we talked about journeying through the wall. And today, I want to talk about enlarging our soul through grief and loss because the journey through the wall is often accompanied by loss and death. Two things real quick and then Sharon's going to come up. Number one, I want to remind all of us that our goal is not to fix people or change people. We can't fix or change anybody. That's God's work. We just want to open up safe spaces to hear from God safe spaces to biblically wrestle with what this means in community. And third, allow the Holy Spirit to do his transforming work within us. We can't change or fix anybody. Secondly, I want to remind us that we desperately need the gospel and Jesus. Amen? Because in order for you and I have the courage to face the dark, deep stuff, you need courage to know that you are secure in Christ. Otherwise, we will not have the courage to look at the underneath stuff. So every single Sunday, I've pointed to the cross to remind us where our security, identity, our self-worth comes from. I want to introduce you to Sharon Whited. I've known Sharon, or first met Sharon about 15, 16 years ago. Sharon is a licensed clinical social worker who has been professional in social welfare and mental health for over 15 years. Sharon attended University of Illinois at Chicago, where she completed her Master of Social Work. Sharon's professional experience includes working with people across the lifespan. She's helped individuals, couples, and families in a variety of clinical settings. Sharon worked as a social worker in child welfare, assisted living nursing care, and an outpatient mental health hospital setting before coming to Whitestone Resources. Her professional experience includes helping individuals, couples, and families experiencing depression, anxiety, grief, trauma, addiction, parenting challenges, and relational conflict. Sharon lives in Chicago with her husband and three children. She's actively involved in her church community and anti-human trafficking work in her city. The reason why she is here today is because, as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, we are almost there to establish here at this church building once or twice a week space for people to come and seek professional counseling. And we've been working with Sharon and her agency to provide that for our church family. Okay? So I thought it'd be a great opportunity for you to get to know Sharon so that you get to see her heart, passion for Jesus as she comes and shares today. New community, we give a warm welcome to Sharon Whiting. Well, it is good to see all of your faces. I've been praying for you, but now I get to put faces um, with those prayers. Um, It is a privilege to be here today. Um, Thank you. Um, I feel like we've already had church. We did. did. (laughs) I feel like we should be just done. But uh, what a beautiful time. Um, to be with you all, to I'm just humbled and honored uh, to be able to come to you. Um, obviously, Peter has already told you that I um, am a professional counselor, but more than that, I am your sister in Christ. 
Uh, I worship and serve the same God you do. Um, I am sinful, just like you are. (laughs) I am broken. Um, And the things that I'm going to share with you today um, really start in that place. um, That I... um, obviously have worked with a lot of people over the years that have dealt with grief and loss, Um, but more importantly, I myself as a follower of Christ have gone through uh, grief and loss to varying degrees from losing my mother to um, suffering with depression um, and many, many others, um, both small and large. And so this is personal, not just professional for me. Um, And so I want to put that out there because sometimes I think you can hear professionals and think, well, they learned that at school. (laughs) You know, they got trained in this, you know, and that's where this comes from. I mean, and in part that is true, but it's also a very personal journey with Jesus. And so I am honored to be with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Sure, let's begin here. I haven't been a pastor all of these years um, and my own journey through EHS. I've mm-hmm. come to realize that people just don't know how to grieve their losses well. Mm. Why is that? Mm. Well, I think part of it is I think that we're misinformed. You know, we all grow up in what I would like to call a classroom of life. Okay, think about all the different things that have influenced you, have taught you from your family of origin, your mother, your father, your siblings, um, your culture, you know, the culture in which you grow up in, um, teachers, pastors, churches, um, the list could go on and on and on. Um, We often think of teaching as school, right? We go to school, we sit in a classroom, we have somebody lecture to us. But our classroom of life as people is much more complex, much more um, broad than that. And there are a lot of things that inform the way we view ourselves, we view the world, and we view God. Um, And so I think sometimes what happens is some of that is really, really good information, right? That we can take in and we can use. It's God-honoring. It's life-giving. But then there are other things um, that we learn in our growing up, in our formational process, um, that are not so good. Mm. (laughs) They are deforming. They are disorienting. They create obstacles to what God calls us into, the life he calls us into, the process of grief that he calls us into. Um, And so if you think for a moment about all the different aspects, all the different ways that you have been formed, the ways you've learned, um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, when it comes to grief and loss, especially in our American society, I mean, this is where we live, so most appropriate to talk about this, is we are really, as Peter already mentioned, a society that is very uncomfortable with the idea of being in pain. We don't like it. We want to avoid it. We want to escape from it. We don't see the value in it. Um, And so we run. We hide. We anesthetize. Um, We try to escape it at all costs. Um, Because we have a distorted view of how pain can actually be a growing and life-giving experience. 
Um, I think the voices around us in this world, um, society, culture, family, um, all of those things we hear day in, day out, every day, all day for our entire life, have a much bigger influence than we want to admit. They shape us more. They influence us more. We give them more weight in our life than we do the scriptures. And so, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, that is what we tend to listen to. We tend to respond to more. Um, What we hear on TV, what we hear from our friends, what the magazines tell us and so forth. And so, I think that is why we don't grieve well. Because we're not attending to the biblical model, the biblical teaching Mm of grief. And Peter mentioned that you all have been talking about Job and studying Job's life. I mean, there's so many saints in scriptures, right? Mm. Um, That we can look to, that we can come alongside and get a a bird's eye view into what it really means to faithfully grieve in a way that honors the Lord. Um, You know, Joseph (laughs) is a great example. There's so many. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, we're coming upon Easter the way she grieved. The disciples, there's there's many, many examples. But I think one of the core reasons is that. um, Is that we have attuned our ear and been misinformed and received that as our truth. And let that inform the way we grieve our losses in life. One of the things, Sharon, that I've noticed... And particularly with uh, folks entering their 20s, mm. is this um, one of the reasons why some folks don't grieve well? Mm-hmm. And, and if I and I'm not a counselor or a therapist, mm-hmm. so I just want to put that out there. So, as your counselor or therapist, if I butcher certain words, please be gracious. To me. <laughs> it's what I'll call defense mechanisms of mm-hmm. denial, mm-hmm. particularly if they're folks who experience abuse as a child. Yeah. Yes. So here's what I've noticed as a pastor is that when you're a child, mm-hmm. the only way to deal with the pain of abuse mm-hmm. is in some ways to live in the realm of denial, mm-hmm. to protect yourself. Sure. In some ways, I feel like it's a gift from God. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I've noticed is that what is helpful or needed as a child to deal with some of that stuff, mm-hmm. that a lot of folks enter their 20s just unaware mm-hmm. And unable, now as an adult, to recognize that maybe those defense mechanisms of Mm -hmm. denial don't work, particularly as it comes to grieving their losses. So, so how do you, how do you help someone? And maybe what are some of the ways that folks in their 20s and 30s, or even later, what are some of the ways that people try and, if you will, live in denial? What are some mechanisms? And Mm -hmm. how do you get people to pass through that and come to grips with grieving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think we are hardwired in some ways to experience these defense mechanisms as a form of protection. I mean, that's really what they are. You know, they're a way to protect ourselves from feeling pain. And there's, you know, this can happen in childhood, but it also can happen in adulthood. Um, you know, for many people who do go through traumatic events as children, this is a way to protect themselves because they have no other means. Um, they don't have the power, they don't have the ability, they don't have the options uh, to get out, 
to leave, uh, to remove themselves. But even in adulthood, I mean, we do utilize defense mechanisms. And in the short term, it's, that's not a bad thing, you know. When we talk especially about grief and loss, um, there's a lot of different... Um, kind of theoretical models, but one that a lot of us may be familiar with, at least in the psychology field we're familiar with, is Kubler-Ross's Stages of Grief. Um, And the first stage is denial and shock, which is a defense mechanism. Um, There's lots of others, and I think uh, Peter Scorsese in the book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, outlines a lot of them, some of the common ones, which would be good to take a look at, and he defines them and all of that, but specifically around grief and loss, this is one, and it's a a protection. It it gives us a buffer (laughs) before we really kind of delve into the process of grief. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? I mean, we've, Peter shared about different kinds of losses we experience, but especially when we're talking about death and traumatic losses, catastrophic losses, it really does help protect us. The problem is defense mechanisms only provide short-term gain. They are not a long-term solution. They are not a long-term avenue to processing our pain. Because what they do is they really like I said before, serve as a shield, a protection. And when you think about a shield, right, nothing gets in and nothing really gets out. <laughs> you know, so it isolates us. It um, creates barrier. It keeps us really from living in reality. You know, denial, by definition, is not accepting reality. <laughs> and God didn't create us to live that way long term. We can't be effective for him when we're not living in what's real. And so as you look at this particular model, it moves into spaces like anger, sadness, questioning, bargaining, and ultimately acceptance. And so it doesn't end with defense mechanisms. That's where we begin. But God has a much fuller, much more life-giving process for us to walk through when it comes to grief and loss. Schizero talks about various pathways Mm. in order for us to grieve well, our various losses. Yeah. I want to talk about some of them. Sure. Particularly from a scripture standpoint. Mm. What does it mean to pay attention What does it mean to pay attention? And why is it important to pay attention as we begin this process? Especially for many of us who are sitting here going, I'm not grieving. I don't have any losses. I'm I'm good. What does it mean? Pay attention. Well, it it kind of sounds like it is, right? (laughs) You know, I think one of the challenges with paying attention is that we are so busy. We're so busy doing so many other things. We give our attention to so many, many things each day. And some of them are really good things. Relationships, jobs, serving the church. You know, they're really good. But, but we're really bad at stopping, at slowing down, at being, being quiet, being still. 
It's hard to pay attention to something when you're distracted. When you filled your life up with so much, there's no room. And, and I think part of our temptation to distraction is we don't want to feel. We don't want to deal. It's easier to stay busy. It's easier to be doing rather than being. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges we face. And so when we look at what it means to pay attention, we're really looking at starting with making space, making room. Um, I also think that um, paying attention to our emotions is really uncomfortable. And especially certain emotions. Um, you know, we haven't practiced paying attention. And I think we were afraid of it. Especially things like anger, sadness, those kinds of emotions. Those are kind of the, the negative emotions. Um, and oftentimes we've been taught they are bad. Even from people in the church. Mm-hmm. If you love God, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be angry. Mm-hmm. If you really were a faithful and committed Christian, you wouldn't be sad. You'd have the joy of the Lord. What's wrong with you? Buck up. Jesus loves you. We've heard those, right? Yeah. We're not good at sitting in pain. And so paying attention is hard because we, we have all of these distorted ideas of our emotional self. I think that part of ourself often is riddled with shame. We feel bad about ourself. We feel bad about our feelings. But God made us to be emotional people. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in my field, we have this thing called the whole person wheel. And it like divides people up like a pizza, which that's not really helpful. But um, it has all these different parts, right? The physical self, the emotional self, the intellectual self. Christians love to stay in the intellectual self part. Um, You know, in all these different aspects. But people kind of are like, oh, the emotional self is like the stepchild of Christianity. You know, we don't really want to go there. That's ugly. That's messy. That's complicated. (laughs) and so I think part of it is is being there I think part of it is being able to identify what we feel putting name to it I'm angry I'm sad I'm afraid but it's vulnerable right it's vulnerable to go there Um, I think instead of resisting being hospitable to our emotional self, welcoming it tenderly. Not wanting to run screaming from it like your hair is on fire. Recognizing that that our emotional self is part of our our beauty of how God made us. You know, it's it's something to for us to tenderly tend to instead of desperately want to strangle. <laughs> And so I think part of it is that. Um, and I think part of it is that you have to remember, emotions serve a function in our life that's really, really important. They often point to things that are important for us to know. They're like little red flags. <laughs> they're, they're instruments of teaching. 
And, and it gives us the opportunity when we're feeling things like anger, fear, anxiety, some of these harder emotions that we wrestle with. It's like, what's going on here? What's going on here? And then it gives us that opportunity to recognize, how am I going to respond? So when we're talking about pain and grief and loss and all of these things, it gives us an opportunity to really see how God is at work in our life and how we can respond out of that place. Oh, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Next one is probably one of the toughest things for me personally. Mm. It's learning to wait in the confusing in between. Mm. It's hard, Sharon. Mm. On one hand, to know intellectually that God is sovereign, that He's loving, He's wise, He's in control. But it's really difficult on the other end. And I've gotten several emails from a lot of our church folks, Mm. Diane. I know those things intellectually, but waiting in this space of confusion, mm-hmm. waiting in this space of not knowing, waiting in this space is really, really hard. Mm. Talk a little bit about what does it mean to wait in the confusing in between, particularly as related mm-hmm. to many of us think of waiting as just passively sitting mm. still, yeah. perhaps in denial, mm. perhaps even giving in to despair. When I don't see that in scripture, is what waiting is. Right. What are some challenges and how do we do this well? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think anybody likes to wait. I mean, we don't even like to wait in line at the grocery store. <laughs> you know, this is not something we enjoy. We resist it. We complain about it. We hope it ends soon right? Um, But I think, you know, the Bible paints a different picture. I think of like the story of Joseph, right? Where he did a lot of waiting, waiting in prison, right? Um, There's a lot of waiting in the saints and scriptures um, from the Israelites and Moses all the way through. (laughs) Um, And I think that part of it is we don't see the value in waiting, Mm-hmm. Waiting is something that we want to be over. We wish it away. I remember as a kid, we would be waiting in line and my mom would be talking to the people in line and I'd be like, oh gosh, this is so embarrassing. What are you doing? She'd be chatting and encouraging and how you doing? And I'd be like, oh my goodness, this is just ridiculous. But it was interesting because now looking back, it's like my mom used waiting as an opportunity. Mm. <laughs> you know? She uses it as an opportunity, and I think that's what God does with us. Mm. You know, waiting really as Christians is often about us submitting ourselves to the part that only God can do, right? Our, our part's kind of already done. <laughs> we're, we're, we've maxed out, you know? Um, and really what we're doing is we're waiting for God. We're waiting for him to do his part. Mm. And I think it's hard because we always want to do something. Mm. Right? Mm. Um, we feel like we need to do something. You know? And yet, I think when we are honest with ourselves, there is an amazing opportunity in that space to learn how to trust. And really, isn't that what it's all about when it comes to Christian walk? 
is trust, trusting God, trusting in who he says he is, trusting in his plans, trusting in his purposes. Um, And I think sometimes we also think we have to wait alone. You know? And the fact is, in waiting, it's easy to default to wanting to escape and get out and question. But when we are in a space where we wait and we get the opportunity to be encouraged, to be cared for, to be nurtured, to nurture the truth in our life, when we take the opportunity to reflect and to be reoriented, it takes the sting out of waiting. You know, it, it takes it from this meaningless, purposeless, boring experience um, where we become impatient and we become frustrated to an opportunity that can transform us. Um, where we can wait in expectancy. And so I think part of it is opening ourselves up to the idea that waiting isn't bad. But waiting can be a beautiful opportunity to wrestle through the discomfort, to challenge ourselves, and to, again, peer in to the life of the saints and say, wow, God can work in the waiting room. This next one, church family. Um, is uh, for your pastor the uh, the challenge um, right now in my life. Um, as many of you know, as I've been preaching through this sermon series, God's been doing uh, his work in my own personal life. And when I came to this particular portion, it's like God just stopped me dead in my tracks. And uh, it's this topic of embracing the gift of limits. Um, Gazero says, we struggle with grieving because we struggle with the issue of limits. I've wondered if the greatest loss we must grieve is our limits. <laughs> but loss and grief cannot be separated from the issue of our limits as human beings. Limits are behind all loss. And Sharon, I'm telling you right now, This is hitting me like a mm. ton of bricks. Yeah. What does it mean to embrace the gift of limits? Mm. And why is it so hard mm-hmm. to embrace the gift of limits? And why is it so important if we are to decide, be, be maturing mm-hmm. as disciples of Jesus? Mm. Yeah. I think it comes back to what we had talked about before in this kind of classroom of life, right? Um, somewhere along the line, um, we start to believe that we don't have limits or that we don't need limits. But that is not how God created us. Um, I think part of it is, too, is that um, the classroom of life we grew up in, especially in American culture, really encourages quite the opposite, right? It tells us we can do it all. 
We can achieve it all. We can succeed on our own. We don't need anyone else. Um, There's always something else we can do. In fact, our very value and worth starts to get tied up in this, right? Be all that you can be, right? I mean, some of the big slogans that we see in advertising encourage this limitless life. You can do anything, be anything, all the time, anytime, right? You know? Like you realize you're talking to a group of people who are listening to you going, what's wrong with any of that? <laughs> I think those are all right, gospel like why truth. not, right? Why yeah. Not? And doesn't technology only increase that, right? You know, we have access to everything all the time, anytime, right? We, are, in a lot of ways, our world sets us up to believe that. You know, sets us up to believe that that is how we were created to function. But they were wrong. They're dead wrong. Because I think part of it is, is that what's happening here, and I think um, in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, Scorsese points this out, is that unconsciously even, most of the time I think unconsciously, we start to think that we are God. God of our own life. Because think, if we think we're limitless, right? What in the world would we need God for? I can do it all. I can be it all. I can handle it all. In fact, I can do it all on my own. <laughs> I don't even need you all. Right? So doesn't that go against this idea of humbly submitting ourselves to the God who made us? Of living in community, of being challenged by our spiritual family? Because if I can do it all, if I have no limits, if I don't need anyone or anything, you know, then, then ultimately what it comes down to is do I really even think I need God? It deceives us into believing that we are self-sufficient. And brothers and sisters, I am aware of this more and more, is I am not self-sufficient. And God has a lovingly, loving and tender way of doing that with us sometimes. You know, we kind of hit rock bottom. (laughs) We burn out. I mean, these are words we hear, right? We come to the end of ourselves, and it's an opportunity to say, oh, I guess I can't do it all. You know, even, even being tired, right? Isn't that an indication that we're limited beings? Right? The need for rest, the need for refuel. You know, and so I think in God's loving mercy, he has intended us to rely on him. That's how he made us. When we're functioning out of that space, we're not functioning the way he made us. And so Peter Scorsese talks about this in the book, which I think is important. In scriptures, we see, you know, that humility is birthed out of this recognition that we are limited. And that's what we need. To humbly submit ourselves to the God who made us. To be about his will and purposes. To recognize that we need him. That we need the body of Christ. We can't do it on our own. And that's the sweet spot. And I think in grief and loss, we are also tempted to do the exact same thing. I can get through this on my own. I can do this. I can push through. I can just get more busy. 
you know? And, and some of the other things Peter mentioned earlier, you know, um, to kind of prop us up. We anesthetize ourselves, you know, so that we can kind of do it on our own, push ourselves to the limit, and, and not recognize that those are just, those are just endless paths to destruction, And so I think in embracing the gift of limits, we embrace how God really made us to be. We throw off the classroom of life that has told us that we can do it all on our own. Because listen, what does that, how does that distinguish us from the world? That's how everybody acts. (laughs) But to have a person that says, I need Jesus. I desperately need God. He is everything. Then, in our weakness, God is made strong. Isn't that what Paul tells us? And so I think that is the space, is recognizing weakness is not bad. Limits are not bad. In fact, through that space, God uses us. Listen, I sit um, hours and hours and hours with people who come in and think I can fix their problem. And I have to quickly dispel the myth that that is not what I do. <laughs> it is humbling because the reality is while I have learned certain skills and tools and so forth, it is Jesus who changes people's lives. I can offer nothing else but his truth and who he is. And though we resist it, you know, the reality is that is the truth. And so I think God gives us the gift of limits, just that. It is a gift because he's like, you need to rely on me. Me, 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 me. And so um, I think he gives those for a reason. It keeps us humble. It keeps us dependent upon him. How many of us struggle with the gift of limits and embracing it for our lives? Anybody? How many of us are at that place where we've come face to face with the reality that God has brought us to that place, but we're fearful that, well, we're fearful. Mm. Anybody? Yep. It feels vulnerable too, living with limits. And I think we forget the God we serve, right? He's strong. He is mighty. He is in control. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. And so we can trust Him because He is limitless. So where we have limits, He doesn't. It's so hard to learn. <laughs> Amen. And sure, and lastly, Scazzaro um, ends with talking about this need to let the old birth the new. Mm. Grieving is not just about letting go, but also letting it bless us. We know intellectually that the central truth of the gospel says that resurrection only mm. comes after death. Mm. We have no problems following Jesus to a party where he turns water into wine. (laughs) 
with no problems following Jesus to a nice sunlit beach where we get to hear him preach. Amen. But very few of us want to follow him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Very few of us sure want to follow Jesus mm. to the cross. That's right. That's right. We don't want to follow him mm. to death, even though we know mm. there's resurrection on the other side. Mm. As I like to say, it preaches easier. <laughs> Than to actually live it. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. Sharon, there are people in our church right now, mm-hmm. for real, for real, mm. they've experienced loss, tremendous loss. Yeah. And the thought of it blessing them, mm. it just seems far fetched. Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean <laughs> to let the old birth the new? And how do we do this as we right now run towards Good Friday and mm. Easter? Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, um, grief is messy. Grief is hard. Uh, loss is hard. I don't want to sound trite in what I'm saying, and I hope I don't. I mean, I really don't. Um, there's nothing easy about suffering, um, and and you know, of course, we don't want to feel pain, right? Of course, we don't want to feel suffering. It's uncomfortable. It's difficult. Um, but I think part of it, our suffering in this world is in light of an eternal picture, right? Um, it's not just about this earth, but it's about the bigger plan that God has um, for us, <laughs> um, for this world, for his people. Um, and if we look at the kind of the microscopic view of suffering, it seems kind of pointless, you know? Um, but I think when we look at it in an eternal way, it can take on a new meaning. It doesn't make it hurt less, by the way. <laughs> and it doesn't make it more uncomfortable. I mean, Jesus himself was in the garden in such profuse agony <laughs> um, that he cried tears of blood. You know? Um, so I, I don't want to dismiss the despair and the pain and the hurt. But I think what following Jesus offers us and this world is a, just a new way of looking, a new paradigm of looking at suffering. One that actually provides hope. Mm. There's very little, I mean, even in psychological theory and such, that it's, it's very humanistic, right? It's like, you know, you can get through it, you know. You be your you be your own best person, you know. Um, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, you know, just think more positive. Um, anyway, um, so you know the reality is that apart from Jesus, there is no hope in suffering. It, it just is an endless cycle of disappointment and getting through and pulling us up by our bootstraps and trying to get to the end, you know, and hopefully along the way there'll be some good stuff too. But in the eternal perspective, um, and I think Peter, you know, pointed to the season we're in right now of Lent moving into Easter, is the fact that the gospel turns that on its head. Um, It says that suffering does have purpose. Um, It does um, have meaning. 
Um, it's not something to just get through. I mean, I have a lot of people that come into my office and say, okay, so yeah, this has happened, that has happened, you know, I'm in pain, I'm in agony, I, I am angry, I'm hurt. Like, so how do I get over that? <laughs> I'm like, well, <laughs> here's some news you probably don't want to hear. You know, um, we don't always get over it. We, we walk through it and we, and we, with God's help, attempt to walk faithfully through it, embracing the truth that God is a plan and purpose in our suffering, to glorify himself. Because I think a lot of times we think about this, somehow this is all about me. So, you know, this process is about me feeling better. Mm. Me getting over it. Mm. Me, you know, even me being the vessel, right? You know, mm. um, but it's not. It's about God's glory. Mm. You know, even as a conduit of suffering and grief, there is the hope that the gospel will reveal to the world through our suffering, through our grief process. That people will look and say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not how the world does that. How, why do you have hope? I mean, and that could be hope with tears streaming down your face. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you put on your happy Christian face and say, it's going to be okay. Mm. I, I'll give you an example of this real quick. I have a friend. Um, she's known the Lord for a long time, but she didn't always. She grew up um, outside of Pittsburgh in the housing projects there. Um, her mom was a drug addict. Um, her dad, at the time she didn't know, um, but was incarcerated age of 19, um, never knew him, um, and found out about his existence when she was almost 20 years old. Um, she fought her way through life. Um, she fought her way into college. She was a survivor. That's what she did. She survived. She survived abuse. She just survived neglect. She survived a really horrific life. Um, and then through her life, she had known of Christ. She had at one point come to accept Christ. Um, but I was talking to her the other day, um, and we were talking about her father, um, who now has been serving 20 years at a maximum security facility in Pennsylvania. And... Uh, she said to me, she said, Sharon, um, I was telling her about grief and loss and what I was going to be doing here today. And she said, you know, it's so interesting. She said, for so long, I was so angry. I was so frustrated. I was so disappointed. I was angry at God. So we never want to do that, right? Um, I was so disappointed in the continued disappointment of my father coming up for consideration to be released and denied over and over and over again. Um, And she said, I was so bound up. I was dead inside. I was distant. I was angry. Um, And and nobody would have known it because I just hit it. I went to church. I put on my happy face. I was actually going to church with her at the time when this last episode happened. And she said, and then I finally decided... I finally decided that it was okay. That it was okay to tell God how I really felt. To be authentic with him. To realize he can take it. You know, she said, I was looking at the Psalms and, man, there's some, some scary stuff in there. <laughs> I mean, the Psalms of lament especially, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's raw. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it's down and dirty. It's the real deal, right? And so here in scriptures, we see the psalmist processing grief and loss, suffering, disappointment. And she said, and I realized for the first time, I can do that. I don't have to hide. I don't have to pretend like I'm a good Christian. Mm. You know, I can get real with God. And so she said, I let it loose. Mm. I cried. I wept. I yelled. I pounded my fist. She said, oh my gosh, my neighbors, I thought they might call the police. But she said, I just kept going and I got it all out there. And I lay it all naked before my Savior. And she said, for the first time in 20-some years, I finally felt free. I felt free from the anger. I felt free from the frustration. I felt free from the torment, the disappointment that just had chained me up, bound me up. And I realized that if my father never gets out of prison, God is still good. And he will use our circumstances for his glory for his purposes in my life, in the life of my father, in the life of all of the people involved in the situation. Because I have an eternal hope. Not only getting to see my daddy in heaven, free, not behind bars anymore, mm. but I get to experience the life transforming power of relying on God. Mm. For him to lead me through this life. To experience the joy of the Lord, not because my circumstance changed, but because I truly embraced who he is. He is worthy of all of me, even the ugly, painful truth. He is worth it, and he will meet me there. She said, Jesus met me there. He was always there, but I just decided that I was really willing to meet him too. And when she told me that story, first of all, I was bawling my eyes out because I love her. (laughs) But mostly because I thought, well, isn't that the new life that springs up out of death? I mean, that, that was what, when she was telling me, I thought, this is somebody dying. She wanted to control it, change it, fight it, use the legal system, do all these things to fix it, to make it right in her eyes. You know, and even though there might be real injustice done here with her father, she wanted to right the wrongs. She wanted to fix it. Mm. And she just finally said, Jesus, I can't do it. It's all about you. Maybe you have a different plan here (laughs) than mine. Mm. And so, um, Mm. you know, Scorsera talks, the central message of Christ is that suffering and death bring resurrection and transformation. And I think... We have a weird view of blessing, don't we? Sometimes we think blessing is God gives me more. We think of him like a dispenser. (laughs) But I think this is really the true blessing. Is that God in his mercy lets us come to the end of ourselves so that we can truly live the way he wants us to live. That's the gift. Is us to live in his design. And we resist it and we fight it and we avoid it and we do all these different things. But I think that's the real blessing is living the way he called us to live and the way he called us to live. And it is messy and it is ugly and it is painful. 
painful and it is hard and it is long and it is a fight. And I think that's why scripture says, take up your cross and follow me. But it doesn't end in the cross, right? Because Jesus rose up. (laughs) So there is life to be had in death. There is life there. But we have to, as believers, um, as faithful followers, encourage each other in the truth. Because the voices of our society, the voices of our culture, the voices all around us, every day, all day, tell us something different. They say, you can be your own God. You don't need anybody else. This is your truth. You can make it on your own. You can do it your way. Death is, is something we run from in our culture not we run to. So may we as believers encourage each other towards death so that we can really, really live. May this be the space right here where we can say death is good. (laughs) Death is good because it brings life. When we come to the end of ourselves, that is exactly where Jesus wants us to be. A number of us walked in here this morning without even realizing that we might be grieving various losses. Mm -hmm. Um, The reality is some of us are grieving the losses in the form of dreams, ministry, family that we wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, Your pastor is grieving, um, I don't know how to place, uh, say this, uh, the loss of recognizing that I've limits. Um, I'm coming to recognize, and please don't judge me. Instead, <laughs> so they're going, "You're now recognizing that, brother." You, so, um, church, I'm uh, recognizing and coming to grips with the fact that I can't be all things to all people. I feel like God's been trying to teach me for the last eight, nine years. You can't be all things to all people. You're trying so hard. And even three month sabbaticals in the last four years where I feel like God's been trying to teach me that lesson. Um, it's hitting me like a ton of bricks. I'm also recognizing that closely related to that is the reality that I planted new community 13, 14 years ago, praying that this church might be all things to all people and come into grips with the reality that it might not. And I'm having a really hard time with that. And I know that my identity and self-worth is wrapped up in a lot of that. Pray for your pastor. Church, um, here's how we're going to end the service because we're done. C.S. Lewis said that you and I need to bring to God what is in us and not what we think ought to be in us. I'm going to say that again. C.S. Lewis said that the place of transformation is when you and I bring to God what is really and actually in us and not what we think ought to be in us. Matter of fact, he says that it's when we think we bring to God what we think ought to be in us that we can't tell the truth about where we're at or even how we're feeling. I'm going to put these prayers up 
Because to me, they articulate what is in me and not what I think ought to be in me. And I've been praying throughout this week that some of these prayers will speak to you specifically and individually. And then I'll tell you how we're going to end this service. Prayer. Lord, I acknowledge that I prefer to ignore and deny my pain and loss. Grant me the courage to pay attention to what you're doing and to wait on you even when, especially when, everything in me wants to quit and run away. Is this what is actually in you? Prayer. Lord, forgive me for the arrogance that sees interruptions to my plans as alien invasions. Forgive me for constantly trying to do more than you intended with my life. Help me to embrace my losses and respect my limits. Prayer. Everything in me kicks against going to the foot of the cross where you will root out of me all that is not of you. Help me not to fear the deaths it will take for me to be transformed into the free person who loves well. Prayer. I admit that I'm often afraid and embarrassed to openly tell you all that is going on inside me, even though I know you know it all anyway. Teach me what boldness in prayer looks like as I draw near to your throne of grace. And lastly, prayer. Grant me wisdom to see the larger picture, to wait to discern the seasons in my life with you. Forgive me for fighting the deaths you send into my life in order to plan something new. Help me to trust you unconditionally. God invites us to bring to him what is actually in us and not what you think ought to be in you. What I'm going to do and how we're going to end the service today and I'm going to ask you to be more courageous today than you have ever in the last four or five weeks of this series. I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray for our tithes and offering. And when we're and I'm done we're going to uh, sing this hymn together. There won't be an official benediction uh, today because as we're singing the hymn and giving our tithes and offering, as you give to the Lord your material resources, today is the day that some of us give to our God our losses, our mourning, our grief, our fears. And what I want to do is I want to invite you, I want to ask the prayer team, to come on all the way up because we're going to pray today for healing. And I've done this periodically for 13 years. James 5.14, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him come before the elders and the church and let them pray over him and her, anointing him and her with oil in the name of the Lord. And we've done this periodically through the years. Um, We want to be able to pray for healing. 
by anointing you with oil. There is nothing magical about the oil. But the act of prayer as men and women lay their hands on you, weep with you, mourn with you, pray over you. God hears that prayer. So again, I'm going to pray for us. Carlton and the worship team will lead. And as they're singing the hymn, give your tithes and offering. And when you're done, those of you that want to be prayed for healing, for restoration, come all the way up. There's plenty of seats in the pews. So you can go ahead and sit and wait your turn because I want to take our time with this today. You're welcome to stay as long as you like in this space by yourself with other folks to pray. And of course, at some point, I want to encourage you to go to the fellowship hall and commune with your church family. As you mourn your losses and grieve your losses today, whatever form they look like, please come up for prayer. I want to pray for you and with you. Before I do, Sharon, come here. Can we thank Sharon? that this sanctuary we would turn into a sacred space. A place where you can sit silently, quietly. A place where you could reach out and grab the hands of your brother, your sister. A place you could reach around and put your arms around someone's shoulder. A place where you can, yes, come forward to be anointed with oil and to be prayed. The only thing, and I mean this, the only thing that our God asks is that you come as you are. That I come as I am. feeling like we need to pretend or say the right words or pray the right prayer but simply come come with what is actually in you and not what you think ought to be in you bring your hurts bring your losses bring your mourning and you're grieving. It's okay. It's okay. Father, we come today without 
pretending without pretenses without feeling like we need to say the right things that we think you want to hear we come with our simple raw honest this is where I'm at need to hear your voice say back to us child of God that's enough for me so will you grant God some of us boldness and courage that we need to actually ask for prayer and to admit and acknowledge our brokenness and our neediness and our desperation Even as we give our tithes and our offering, recognizing the amazing, gracious gift of your Son that we offer today, our very lives, we surrender today, our very lives, we bring to the altar and the foot of the cross our very selves as living sacrifices. So we come today to our only source of hope, the only one, one true God that brings resurrection out of death. Son and the Holy Spirit.